0: Welcome to the weekly podcast, recorded live at Glory City Church, Brisbane. We hope you are blessed by this week's sermon. If you've got a Bible, can you turn with me to John 15, verse 9? I want to share something that's become somewhat of an obsession. Because I don't know the depth of it, but I want to. Uh, It's also... I find this very fascinating what I'm gonna share with you. It's a it's a simple revelation but it's it's unfathomably deep and, and I wanna search the depth of this as a family in the seasons to come. And tonight I'm gonna to talk about loving one another. And some of the ways I feel the Lord has empowered us to do that in deeper ways within the church and in the world, also some of the things that hinder us from demonstrating and walking in love toward each other more consistently. This is, this is what the Lord had put on my heart today, and I'm, I'm, it's one of those nights where even in worship, I'm just getting pulled in different directions in my heart, um, as recent as just before I hopped up here. So I'm going to do my best to be succinct and clear, and we're going to pray for some people. Is that cool? Awesome, John 15 verse 9, Jesus speaking to the disciples, and he says this, he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Okay, so we've got God the Father, right? You've got God the Son, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, humans, God the Father loving God the Son, God the Son loving humans, his disciples. Okay. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. What that means is that Jesus loved Peter exactly the way the Father loves Peter. Right? Pretty straightforward. Jesus loved Peter just like the Father loves Peter. Because it's just like the Father loves Jesus, that Jesus loved Peter. Are you with me? Okay. At that point, was Jesus a human? You waiting for me to qualify with the fully God, fully man? Before you go, yes, but he was also fully God. We know. I hope we know that. He was fully God and fully man. It's a magnificent revelation, but he was absolutely fully man in this moment. And this fully man, God, but as a full man, was loving these other men, humans, just the way Father God, was Father God human? Ooh. Okay, so Father God, not human, loving Jesus, God, <laughs> human, loving human, right? Are you with me still? <laughs> right, hang in there, Liam. Okay, so evidently Jesus, as a full man, has the ability to love other humans in the same way that Father God has the ability to love Jesus. What does that tell you about humans? Our ability to love is beyond what we can imagine. Because he didn't say, as the Father's loved me, I've loved you about 50% of because I'm fully human at the moment and fully God and my humanity limits me from loving you like fully God. Right? So how's the 50% going for you? You digging it? He doesn't, he doesn't say that because his humanity did not limit his divinity. Right? But he's, he's, he's doing this as an example for us. Let's prove it. Let's go a few more verses down. to John 15 verse 12. You got it there? John 15 verse 12. He says, this is my suggestion. What? <laughs> this is my what? Commandment. Not suggestion. Not good advice. This is my commandment to you. This is Jesus. That you love one another as I have loved you. Well, that's another level. So, as the Father has loved me, God, the Father, not limited by humanity, right? Loved Jesus, the Son, fully God, fully man. Now, He has loved the disciples and now He says to them, now you love one another as what? I have loved you. How did he love them? As the Father loved him. Right? So what kind of love is possible? What is that love? I'm I'm obsessed with this. This fascinates me. I think about it while I drive my car. And in other situations. (laughs) And he didn't just suggest it. He commanded it. Would he ever ask us to do something that wasn't possible to do, just to laugh at us while we tried to do it? No, I never see him do that. Cover to cover in my Bible, so he's obviously empowered us as new creations to hold the same kind of love for people that he was able to have for people. And what kind of love did he have for people? The love God has for people. That's amazing. That's a huge deal. So what? Okay, no, don't get ahead of yourself. John 13, 34, I love this as well. This takes it another step. Are you ready? You keeping up? It's a bit of a breadcrumb thing we got going on. John 13, 34 and 35 actually adds... Another element to this. So we've got the Father loving Jesus, Jesus loving the disciples. The disciples called to and commanded to love each other the same way Jesus loved them, which is the way the Father loved him. Right? Okay. Now he says one of the key motivations in his heart that we would learn to love one another the way he loved us. John 13, 34 says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, Just as I have loved you, so also are you to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Wow. There is a testimony to the world of Christ when we love one another as the church, as his disciples. And when I read my Bible, I read uh, explicitly that love never fails. So I wonder if we could prioritize learning to love one another if it could become our best form of evangelism, could become one of our greatest tools for reaching the world. I shared with our academy students recently, we're, we're finished for the year, but I, I shared how... Occasionally, when I've encountered different cultures or communities that are experiencing a form of revival or a degree of revival culture, and they're seeing an influx of souls being saved, I've sought to observe whether the degree of love present in that space is increasing while the souls are also increasing that are being saved, Because I think sometimes we as the church have devalued the command to love one another under the guise of dismissing the time required to connect or build authentic connection and and make space to love our brothers for the sake of reaching the world. So sometimes I've, I've, I've actually watched this happen. I've watched it in ways I don't even want to testify to. Because it's painful to have Christians in conflict before the world and, I've, and watching the world respond with, why would I want what you say you have when I see this kind of thing going on in there? It's painful because the opposite was what he invited us into. And it's for us. And I know he wants to empower us deeper in it. You with me? I think if revival culture increases but love for the brethren starts to decline, I think we're missing a huge element of God's heart. Revival should exalt family, not cost us family. Revival should increase the family of God, not compromise it. And I mean, when a a lost soul comes home into the kingdom, it might be a miracle. It might be, I know what it was for me when I was 19. It was the Holy Spirit. It was God, the ultimate evangelist, just tugging on my heart in a Pentecostal church, actually over the road in QUT. used to be called Metro Church. And now it's called IC. Paul and Joe Geeling lead that church. And I'm sitting in an altar call and it's the Holy Spirit tugging on my heart. I had responded to an altar call. That's why I don't um, speak against altar calls as a limited way of reaching the lost. That's how I got born again. Someone did an altar call at a church and Holy Spirit grabbed my heart and I got born again. But it was these key individuals in that church that sought me out with an authentic love and a desire to nip me into family. It taught me some foundations that actually kept me in the faith. The moment of conversion is so exciting, but it's the life with Christ that we need love for to help people walk in. Are you with me? Awesome. Why do you think Jesus sent the disciples two by two? I used to think it was accountability. just in case Peter lost his temper at someone while they're evangelizing, then his his partner could have gone, come on, Peter. I did, or maybe safety, but then I thought maybe if you go two by two, so you have a buddy in case something goes wrong, but everything went wrong two by two as well for these guys. <laughs> that didn't stop them getting in trouble, right? Why well, send them two by two? Well, if if love for one another is such an enormous witness to the world, then why send them one by one? Right? How can you demonstrate the love that you've found for your brother, your Christian brother, your Christian sister, in isolation? You with me? But if you send them two by two, you can both reach the lost and be a demonstration of the love of God for one another in servant-hearted relationship, Christian relationship, two by two. I'm convinced that's a key reason he sent them two by two. So they could be a living demonstration of love as they went. Can I show you something crazy? Okay, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 12. This, this blows my mind. And I feel the pleasure of God on this. This is this priority that we see in the heart of the apostles, as, even as they write their epistles and, or in the book of Acts. Oh, I want to read a few passages on this. Flip. But 2 Corinthians 2 verse 12, I find this absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians and he says this. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord. You hear that? I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and a door was opened for me in who? In the Lord. Okay, the Lord's opening a door. My spirit was not at rest. Why? Because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia instead. Did you catch that? Yeah. Oh my goodness. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and a door was opened for me in the Lord, here I am, my spirit couldn't find rest because I could not find my brother, Titus, there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. What was in Paul's heart for his brother Titus? If it was so important to him, I don't believe he disobeyed God. I don't believe he would have done that. I believe he knew the heart of God to such a way. And, and that, that he understood God's value for companionship, his value for connection, his value for the demonstration of love that Christians can have, Right? to reach the lost. now. sometimes we we reduce these apostles who are like heroes to us because we read about their lives in the Bible. We we reduce them to this one-dimensional picture and we make them these militant juggernaut people, right? Harvesting machines, pushing aside the commandment to love one another profusely on the way to reaching the harvest. They weren't. They were, they were obsessed with learning how to love one another as the, the family of God whilst they reached the world to increase the kingdom, right? In Philippians 1 verse 8, Paul says this, God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Whose affection is he yearning for them with? The affection of Christ that a man is experiencing for a community. And he's not just holding it there, he's yearning. It means to crave, it means to long for. What kind of love had he opened himself up to for the church? What kind of prayers had he prayed? God, show me how you see your bride. God, show me afresh how you see her. God, show me the Philippian church, God. I oh, thank you for this one and this one and this one. Thank you for how you, how you made the way for them to come into your kingdom. Thank you for the love that you're growing in them. Right? What kind of love had he invited? Have you ever done that? God, show me afresh what you see about Didi. Show me afresh, Delano. Show me his heart again. I did it to Delano in worship in my heart. <clears throat> I saw him, I was like, Delano's here. And I looked over and I'm like, Delano's here. And I look back, but then my heart's just drawn back to him. I'm like, God, show me again who he is. I started to get this picture of who he is and what he carries and this love just wells up for, for you, Delano. But it's intentional. It's like you look to love. You look for love. You find ways to let it grow in your heart. And one of the best ways is, God, show me again who this person is. Show me again. Let me see what you see. Let me rub my eyes if I need to and see with fresh eyes this person who I see so regularly. Right? Awesome. Oh, man. Okay, one more. One more demonstration of this. Acts 20, verse 36. Who knows how many years Paul was in Ephesus for, before he took off for a while? Somewhere around two. It was at least two. (laughs) Revival broke out. You remember Acts 19, Acts 20? Absolute chaos. I mean, he was taken to court because he the idol makers were running out of business because everyone's burning their witchcraft books in the center of the town and then he gets kicked out of the synagogue. So he rents a hall and he for two years every day met and taught and preached and equipped and raised up the church and identified leaders and established communities, house to house in the lecture hall, house to house in the lecture hall. <laughs> Revival in Ephesus. I think it was the third largest city. I glanced at Meg's because she's just like a well of this information. A third, second or third-ish. It was a big city back then. And it underwent revival. Gee, the economy changed. That's huge, right? So he's there for two years. Have you ever been somewhere for two years? (laughs) Australia? Like two years now? Or is it more than two years? It's about two years. So, does it feel like a long time? It does? Yeah. It feels like a long time, but in the scheme of your life, it's also two years. Right? And I'm fascinated because if you go a little further on from this into Acts 20 verse 36, you get this glimpse into how much love Paul had developed for the church in Ephesus, and the church in Ephesus had developed for Paul in two years. Right, So he goes on, he ministers in different places, almost a year goes by that he hasn't seen them. Now he's, he's making his way back through and he gets this sensation in his heart that if I don't stop and visit at least the elders, if I can get them together, because he's sailing, right? So if I just get them to come meet me on the beach while I'm passing through in Miletus, I could see them one more time, Right? And so he, he he writes them a letter, he says, Guys, come meet me on the beach. I'm sure he gives them a time and place. I don't know how long they're waiting, but he finds his way there. He gets to the beach, right? And he gives them this phenomenal spiel. Have you ever read through Acts twenty? It's absolutely phenomenal. He he just he retraces what he did in Ephesus for them. And he said he warns them. He says, People are gonna come, they're gonna try to cause division, but you guys need to be strong. And he gives them these warnings. He says, I'm innocent of the blood of you all because I did not shrink back from preaching the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm innocent because I preached the full gospel to you. And then you get to this verse 36 and he says this. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them. Can you see it? So two years with these guys, one year break, and then he comes just to see them one last time. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely, and they fell on Paul's neck, and they kissed him, sorrowing the most for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him back to the ship. Can you see the love if you're not looking for it, you won't see it, but your New Testament is riddled with this dimension of love that's possible for the church to have as a witness to the world, right? That's a big deal. The NASB, NASB translation says that they kissed him continually. It's a big deal. Oh, my goodness. I don't know what it means to fall on someone's neck. I don't. I don't think I want that to happen because my peck, my picture is like it's not very comfortable. I looked at Dee. She was like, oh, "Did they right on the neck there?" I imagine it was glorious, whatever it was. I. Like, I don't. I just can't get the perfect picture of it. But there is a love available to us that we have to reach for. We have to learn to fight for in the church. There's some real simple, crafty things the enemy tries to, to use to keep us from love. And one of them is in, uh, unpacked in Hebrews 12, verse 15. And it's a fence. Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That word bitterness is also a word for offense. If you go to Strong's Concordance, you can look that up. Offense. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness or root of offense springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You know, offense is something that grows, and if you're carrying a fence in your heart towards something else, do you know actually the Greek word, um, you know, the, see the word defiled there, the word actually means to contaminate or to dye with another colour, or to pollute, so if, if you're offended with someone, it's like an invisible dye that you've got and you can just squirt it on other people through your conversations. About other individuals, and it can spread and grow offense. I I have an incredible friend in Balaclava in South Australia, it's Balaclava, I think, uh, named Carl Hosbrook. He's a missionary, he's an amazing, he's a Churches of Christ pastor down there. And he said to me once, Offense taken is grace not given. And it really stuck with me that saying Offense taken is grace not given. It's a good one to write down. Offense taken is grace not given. When you take an offense, you have not given grace. It's a big deal, hey? I think one of the key ways the devil tries to get us to be offended with people is to make us feel like orphans instead of sons and daughters. If you you fail to live in a revelation that you're adopted by God and he's become your father and that makes everyone around you brothers and sisters, if you fail to live in the, the revelation of your adoption, you begin to believe and think like an orphan instead. And in an orphan mentality, comparison, judgment, and offense are so quick to come in your direction. Have you ever noticed that? Has anyone ever found that? You've been walking as a son, but then you've maybe slipped out of it and you can actually feel there's an easier pathway of offense in these different things. There's a few of us raising our hands. But to live in a revelation, oh my gosh, I'm a son, I'm I'm adopted, can actually be a repellent to offense. An absolute repellent to comparison, to judgment, to strife. You know, one of the best ways if to deal with an orphan mindset is to not respond like a sibling if you encounter it. It's to respond like a mother or father. One of the best ways to disarm an orphan mindset is to respond to it like a father or a mother would instead of like a sibling would. Right? Oh, that's... It's so necessary for us. can I show you guys something? This is what the Lord showed me. this will be the last thing I do um it's in genesis i've I've ribboned it during worship It's in Genesis nine it's in verse eighteen. This is incredible to me. Do you know Noah wasn't just this epic guy that built an ark, lived through a flood, resettled the human population. He, he was essentially, at the time, the world's greatest minister. There wasn't many people around. So it was an easy title to have, but it's a big deal. And even when the New Testament looks back at him, it says that he was a herald of righteousness into an entire generation. This guy was not a um, pastor of a local church. He was a world-renowned, right, minister of righteousness who, through his actions, actually condemned the world by exposing their self-righteousness or their sin and became a herald of righteousness. This is a big deal kind of guy, right? High profile, you could say. You with me? I'm going somewhere with this. So Genesis 9, he comes off the ark. You're on board, the ark? He comes off the ark, and it says this, verse 18, The sons of Noah who went forth, who knows them? Shem, Ham, Japheth. Right? You with me? Awesome. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of who? In brackets there. Canaan. Why why identify that? Oh my goodness, this is huge. Oh, yeah. Bro, spoiler alert back here. Exactly. So he identifies his lineage, right? What? Okay, bro. Back up. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So he plants a vineyard and grows some wine, gets drunk, gets naked, passes out. This is what Noah did. Does it diminish everything he's achieved through his obedience to the Lord in any way? Something to think about. And what happened? Verse 22. And Ham, the father of who? Canaan. This is significant that it keeps referencing who Ham was the father of. Because the impact of Ham's decision to dishonor his father stayed in his family. And caused a rift for an entire nation. I'm trying to make this mildly lighthearted, but this is what I felt in the Lord. Someone had a, let's call it a, a fall. He fell. Noah's fallen. An element of sin. A high profile person having a fall. Right? Ham sees it, gets out his smartphone, jumps on Facebook. It takes an opportunity to write an article about why the great ones fall so quickly. It was probably the model of church that Noah had embraced. It was probably this. It was probably because he didn't do this enough. It was probably his prayer life. It was probably something with his marriage. I'll take a photo. I'll throw it out there for the world to see. I'll take an opportunity in someone's weakness to vent an opinion of mine. You see where I'm going? Okay, good. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers, Shem and Japheth. That's almost telling the whole world back then. (laughs) Right? This is meaningful. He told everyone he could find. (laughs) I'm not even joking. I know it's a bit funny, but that's what he did. Right? He's, he's sought to expose it. This is one of the best pictures of honor I've ever found in my Bible. You want to know what, what God's idea of honor is? Have a read of this. Because this was not honor. It was to expose. For whatever motivation that wasn't love, it was to expose a person in that moment. And what did Shem and Japheth do? So Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backwards into the tent and covered the nakedness of their father. That's honor. That's what honor does. Their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now I want to say there's a difference between covering something and concealing it. See, honor doesn't ignore. If, you, if they ignored it, they wouldn't have walked in and covered it, right? So honor isn't to ignore. There's something about covering a person so that the noise of people's judgment and offense, those that don't know better, can be as quiet as possible so a person's heart can be restored outside of the space of accusation and judgment. When I see significant people having um, falling into sin, this is what I want to say. I, I, I think God is as displeased with the sin that great men fall into as he is with the gossip that comes after it. I think he's just as grieved with both. falls from great heights and the gossip and judgement that circles it and I think the world jumps on this stuff the world jumps to see what the church will do, will it shoot its wounded or will it demonstrate love will it cover as much as possible for the sake of restoration not for the sake of concealment and will it honour the bride, will it honour itself, will the body be cancer free right if someone falls into sin, it's not an opportunity to voice your opinion about their model of church or their this or their that. It's not even—it's not even kind to analyze to use it as an opportunity to analyze. It's people's marriages that are involved. I'm saying this very purposefully. I so want to see a church that would gather and cover and love and 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 see individuals, not just see the fallout and, and then make brash judgments on people. Because I just feel, as I as I reflected on this, John 15 and John 13, the love we're called to have, commanded to have for one another, I don't see that in it. And I mean, what's, what's our opinion on Facebook doing to change history or change the world anyway? At the end of the day, is it? And the small window that it gives the world into how we treat each other, is it worth it? I don't think it is. You guys alright? The best way is to stay free of offense is to stay in sonship. One of the things I've built into my heart, if someone does me wrong, is a very, very vivid picture of Jesus Christ hanging on a cross saying, Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. I've had it blast up from my spirit into my mind in the midst of being being mistreated. You know, it's possible. It's possible to live free of offense for the rest of your life. It's, it's possible. In fact, it's normal. It is. It's sonship. It's the way of Christ. It's it's what he demonstrated and then empowered us with his spirit to live as. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to pray for us in a moment. You guys okay? Awesome. Does love keep a record of wrong? Great. Let's not do that. Does love seek its own? No. Okay. Let's not do that. Can I just read a couple of verses from One Corinthians thirteen? Honestly, I know it gets quoted at a lot of weddings, and it's one of those. It's one of those passages you got to fight to see the glory on it. It's like the Ephesians six armor or some of these these passages that are so familiar to us. Man, Josiah's word. Just take Josiah's word and apply it to One Corinthians thirteen. Repeat. Reload and repeat on this passage. I'm actually going to read it from the Passion. Rare, but I'm doing it. (laughs) All right, fire out. (laughs) All right, 1 Corinthians 13. If I were to speak, actually, if you want to close your eyes, I want this to hit our spirits tonight. This is the Word of God. And we haven't just been called to live like this. We have become the very essence of this. This isn't something we're reaching for. It's something we're reaching within to let come forth more. Are you with me? Because God is love and we've been made back into his image as new creation. So we have become love. So this is our call. Sometimes it's pushing through and pushing away the offense, the judgments, the unforgiveness, or whatever it is. The pain of the past so we can re-engage what we are and who we are. If I were to speak with the eloquence of earth's many languages... And in the heavenly tongues of angels, yet I didn't express myself with love. My words would be reduced to the hollow sound of nothing more than a clanging cymbal. And if I were to have the gift of prophecy with a profound understanding of God's hidden secrets, and if I possessed unending spiritual knowledge, and if I had the greatest gift of faith that could move mountains, but I've never learned to love, then I am nothing. It doesn't say I have nothing. It says I am nothing. That's huge. This is, this is a big shot guy with a huge gift of faith and the, and the prophetic. It says he's nothing. If he's not yet learned to love. And if I was to be so generous as to give away everything I own to feed the poor and to offer my body to be burned as a martyr, Without the pure motive of love, I would gain nothing of value. Love is large and incredibly patient. Love is gentle and consistently kind. Love refuses to be jealous when blessing comes to someone else. And love never brags about one's own achievements, nor does it inflate its own importance. Love does not traffic in shame and in disrespect, nor does it selfishly seek its own honour. Love is not easily irritated nor quick to take offence. Love joyfully celebrates honesty and finds no delight in what is wrong. Love is a safe place of shelter, for it never stops believing the best of others. Love never takes failure as defeat, because love never gives up. Love never stops loving. It extends beyond the gift of prophecy, which will eventually fade away. It's more enduring than tongues, which will one day fall silent. Love will remain long after words of knowledge are forgotten. Our present knowledge and prophecies are but partial. But when love's perfection arrives, the partial fades away that's the love of God that's who we're called to be can you guys stand for me I'd just love to pray for us and then we're just going to move into some ministry time thank you for joining us if you would like to partner with us in spreading the gospel to the nations you can do so via our website www.glorycitychurch.com.au We would love to hear from you. If you have a prayer need, please send us an email at info at glorycitychurch.com.au We would also love to hear your testimonies. You can email these praise reports to info at glorycitychurch.com.au God bless.